Would you please join me as I pray? Father, we, we pause in these moments to prioritize your voice. And in a season where we as a community are, are hungering for you, a month of fasting and prayer, creating greater space for you as a family, in our hearts and in our community. My request is that you would feed us with true spiritual food in these moments, that you would fill us up with yourself, that we would, as a result of setting our mind on this text, of prioritizing your voice, that we would be a people that are transformed, that it would find its home in us, and that we would begin to set our minds on different and better things, that we would see Jesus in his beauty and experience the benefits of, of setting our affection on his presence and on his nearness. So help us to be people that, that change the traffic of our mind as a result of receiving this text and experience the benefits of it, therefore. So you're welcomed here. We're eager to hear from you. Holy Spirit, come and make this text plain to each hearer. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. A movie's soundtrack changes the way that you experience what's on the screen, does it not? Like, an image on the screen doesn't carry all the emotional weight. It's actually the song that's playing that is doing something to you based off of what you're seeing. It's the reason that every time it gets me, I get to the end of that, you know, uh, those movies where all of a sudden there's, a, there's like the, the music swells and remember the Titans does it for me, you know? The music swells at the end and then all of a sudden I'm like, what is this salty discharge coming out of my eyes? Uh, and it's not just the image, it's the image in conjunction with the music. The music actually stirs something in us. It changes the way we look at something. You could see one image with a certain set of music and it could be lighthearted and you could see it with another type of music and it all of a sudden feels ominous and dangerous because the soundtrack changes the way you experience life. And when you go to watch a film, you don't get to choose the soundtrack. It's already been chosen for you. But the beautiful and powerful reality is that in your life, you do get to choose the soundtrack. You get to choose what is running through your mind. That the truth is, you've seen it where two people can be standing and looking at the same set of circumstances and one can be coming apart, coming undone, thinking, oh, I knew it, it was always gonna be miserable, everything's awful, nothing pans out for me. And the other is standing and looking at the exact same thing and receiving it with anticipation and joy and authority. And you go, well, what's the difference? It's so frequently, it's, it's the soundtrack. It's the loop that is allowed to play in the mind that is shaping the interaction with the world. And the author of Hebrews, I think, is gonna play upon this really powerful idea this morning by actually charging us to set our minds on something. And the way that he's gonna go about saying this, it's a very strong way of saying it, that he's actually saying, like, let this be the loop that plays. And he's gonna give us a different sort of soundtrack because we all carry one. We're smuggling one in. And you know these types of people. You are these types of people. I'm, that Some smuggle in this, like, really negative soundtrack where we assume in every setting that, well, they don't really want me here. They don't care what I have to say. I'm not that important. I'm not that valuable. And there's others that maybe think, they've been waiting for me to arrive. 
<laughs> I'm finally gonna illumine all these people. They're gonna, they're gonna all love me. I'm so, that we have these different soundtracks and somewhere in between, we're all smuggling something in. And the truth is, most of them are broken and false soundtracks that need God's reworking. And in this passage in Hebrews, he's gonna supply us with something different. He says, if, if you set your mind on this, it will deliver tremendous benefit to you. In chapter two, what it is gonna say to us is set your mind on this. Jesus is with you. The one that we were talking about last week who's above even the angels, he is the radiance of the glory of God and by the power of his word, he holds the whole of the created order together. That Jesus is with you. And he's going to invite us to have this become a soundtrack. He's gonna, he's gonna call us to set our mind on that. And the way that the flow of this chapter, there's a lot happening in Hebrews 2, so I'm just gonna make it really clear kind of the, the path through this passage. In verses one through four, he's gonna show us how do you set your mind on something? What, what's going on as he calls us to set our minds? Verses five to 13, we're gonna see what is it what does it mean that Jesus has solidarity with his people, that he is with us? And so we're gonna try to make sense of that, but then in the conclusion, we're gonna see what benefits and blessings flood into your soul when this is the soundtrack of your life. You with me? Okay. So, set your mind on this. Look at verses one through four with me, and I want you to feel the weight of what he's saying as he's calling us to pay much closer attention to something. Do you see the first word there? The first word is therefore. So he's linking this very directly to the argument he just made in chapter one, which if you were with us last week was this really high vision of Jesus. He's going, listen, if Jesus is really divine in all of these ways and he's walked on the earth as a human being, we need to pay really close attention. In a sense saying, in light of his divinity, pay close attention to his humanity. Watch him. If God walked through the world as man and has revealed the way to salvation and life and fullness, we better pay close attention. So he starts with therefore linking it to the argument he's just made and he says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Much closer attention, it literally means take your mind and put it on something and then when he says much or more, it means abundantly and over the top. So the way we're thinking about that is let it play on loop. Set the soundtrack of your mind. Pay much closer attention. He says, lest we drift away from it. For since the message that was declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's still playing on this theme of angels and he's talking about the law here that the angels helped to mediate in the Old Testament. So he's saying, if their word was reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So if Jesus is greater than the angels and he's speaking and it, those who disobeyed the angels were judged, how much more if we drift away from what Jesus has to say, right? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God has borne witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's arguing at the outset of this. He hasn't actually given us fully the content of what he's calling us to pay much closer attention to other than this great salvation. He hasn't unfolded what that means, but he's making the argument that we as people are prone to let what is precious slip through our fingers. Did you hear it? He says you'll drift away from it. He says you'll neglect it. 
To neglect means to treat something that is really valuable as though it were light or inconsequential. He says we drift away. You know, this is actually my, this is actually my fourth wedding ring because uh, I lost the first three. Um, and the first one really was the one that hurt the most because it was the one that my wife put on my finger in the wedding ceremony and she had had it, it had like a surprise engraving put on the inside of it that really meant a lot to me. So when I lost that one, that was really sad. And the truth was when she, when she got it for me, it wasn't sized quite properly. It was a half size too big. But I just kept thinking like, it doesn't just come off. You know, it's a little loose. I could probably have it resized, but I didn't know how long that takes or how expensive it is or how you even go about that. And so I just kept talking myself out of it. It was like, well, it's, it's fine, it's fine. And uh, one of our first Christmases together, we were loading up the Christmas tree to go dump it after Christmas at the little place where you can dump your Christmas trees. And we were driving down the road and it, it started to fly off of our car because I'd done such a great job tying it on. You know, like newly married me, like trying to be tough. Oh, I got it, I got it. I pulled over on the side of the road and I'm wrestling with the tree and trying to get it back on. And we got in the car and we drove a mile down the road and all of a sudden I was like, oh no, my ring is gone. The cold weather, a half size too big, wrestling with a Christmas tree. And it was just rolling down the road somewhere. We drove back and retraced our steps, it was gone. And you know, I didn't set out to lose my ring. In fact, I really valued that ring. It meant a lot to me. But what I didn't do is I didn't aggressively set out to not lose it. Yeah, I didn't make a plan for not, not drifting away. It, it slipped through my fingers because I treated it as light and inconsequential. And in this, in this context, what he's saying is we are prone to, to treating things that are precious like they're light. And it might not just be your ring. I mean, the truth is, if, if we need to prove it even further, like a wedding ring's one thing, but oftentimes in marriage, it's not just a ring. It can be love itself. Like love itself can feel like it slips through our fingers in a marriage where all of a sudden you stretch it out over years and busyness and exhaustion and all of a sudden when you lay down at night it feels like there's a chasm between the two of you in the, in the middle of the bed and you're going, how did we get here? It's not like we wanted to get here. We didn't set out to get here, but obviously we didn't aggressively aim to not end up here because the human heart is prone to treat things that are precious like they're light and inconsequential. We end up letting really good things slip through our fingers. It is a natural human folly that, that we carry along with us. And into this space, the author of Proverbs, or pardon me, the author of Hebrews, recognizing our propensity towards this end says, listen, do not do this with such a great salvation. Jesus has gone to great lengths to accomplish something for you, to be with you. Listen, it is going to be your natural tendency to be excited about it on the front end, but as life marches on and day after day takes shape and things are busy and at times stressful and exhausting, that you just slowly start drifting away. You don't stay on guard. You don't say, I don't know how much time or attention it's gonna take to readjust this or stay connected to this. I'm not sure I've got space for that today. And we're just gonna slowly drift away from this great salvation. At the front end, he's saying, if Jesus is divine and he has come and walked in the world to rescue you and to accomplish all that we're about to read together, if this is all true, listen, hold tightly. Set your mind on this. Set it as the soundtrack of your mind. And then after 
charging forward with this claim, with this call. He's going to, in verses five through 13, say, and this is that good news that we're laying hold of. And I wanna take it in two chunks. I wanna take five through nine and then 10 through 13. And what we're exploring is the solidarity of Jesus with his people. He is with us. He starts in the first half of this argument, he's gonna quote Psalm 8. And I just wanna set it up for us because the way that Hebrews quotes the scriptures can be a little bit disorienting. He quotes an Old Testament Psalm that is about humanity in general and about Adam specifically, about the fact that humanity was given dominion in the world. And he's saying this is beautiful and it's worthy of worship that humanity has been given this dignified place. But what we know is that Adam and all the rest of us have not fulfilled our call perfectly. And he's gonna take this Psalm and he's gonna show us that ultimately Jesus is the great, the one who has fulfilled and accomplished all that was attended in Psalm eight. And he's gonna show us that he's doing that to stand with us and for us in that place. Look in verse five and following as he builds this argument. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> I love how specifically he quotes his scriptures. He's just like, it's somewhere. But then he quotes it exactly. You can tell that the scripture is in him. He's like, this is somewhere, trust me. And then he just unloads it for us. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then he, he exposits the text. He's explaining it and helping us to see how Jesus is the one that makes it, makes it make sense. He says, now in putting everything in, subject, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, in, in our house church, the observation, the really beautiful observation was made this week that this is actually the first time the name of Jesus is used in the book of Hebrews that we've gone all the way through chapter one and halfway through chapter two before he's actually named. It's just been talking about the son or the, the one who's done this. It's almost as if it's been baiting us to be on the edge of our seat going, yes, and, yes, and. and he's going, and, and let me tell you, this one who has fulfilled all for you, he's come to be with you and accomplish what no one else could accomplish in bringing everything under his feet and authority. His name is Jesus. But then did you see it? He was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and his death. Isn't it interesting? The crown of glory and honor was not put on Jesus' head when he was superior to the angels. It was put on his head when he was made lower than the angels, suffering and dying on our behalf. We see the beauty and the glory of Jesus in his withness with us. He has gone to great lengths to go, I'm going to come and be with you. You will finally see my glory and honor in all of its fullest display when I am made lower than the angels. And then he continues to build the argument after this big reveal of let me show you this one I'm talking about. His name is Jesus and he was willing to be made lower than the angels to fulfill all that humanity was supposed to be. And then he continues on in verse 10 through 13 showing us that he was actually paving the way so that we would understand what it means to live the full, good, real life. 
Verse 10 through 13, this is what he says. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, let's pause, that's God the Father. So he's saying, okay, so the son came and became lower than the angels and suffered and died. And listen, this was according to the will of the Father. It was pleasing to the Father in bringing many sons to glory that he would make the founder of their salvation. That's Jesus. Another translation for the word founder there is the leader or the one who paves the way for. So what he's saying is it pleased the Father that the Son would come and pave the way for salvation and, and that he was made perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Let's pause again. This is all language that we can get gummed up in if we're not careful. What's he saying? The one who sanctifies, Jesus, the one that was willing to be made low for your benefit, he sanctifies you or makes you holy. And the one who is sanctified, that's you and me, all have one source. That word source is not there in the Greek. It's supplied to us by the translators because it's kind of awkward. What it says is the one who sanctifies and the one who's sanctified all have one. That's what it says. And so if you have a different translation open in your lap, it might say one father or one family or one source because what it's trying to get at, ultimately the text doesn't supply, it's just saying one. Jesus has gone through all of this. He was willing to engage suffering and death on your behalf so that we could be one. We have the same one, unified. And out of that, this is what he says, that is why he's not ashamed to call you and me brother and sister. Because he has gone to this length, he has tasted all that we've experienced. He's paved the way for us through life, through suffering. He's saying, I now am not ashamed to say, you are my brother, you are my sister. And then he proves it from a few texts from the Old Testament saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children, of, the children that God has given me. He's quoting from the Psalms and Isaiah to prove that there are these moments where we should have anticipated that the Messiah would say to his own, you are like my own siblings. So do you feel the logic? This is kind of intense Holy Spirit logic that I just wanna set in our souls so that we can experience the benefits together. Do you feel it? He's saying, set your mind on this. Jesus has gone to great lengths to be with you. He was willing to be subjected, even made lower than the angels, subjected to suffering and death to secure all of the blessings and benefits for those that are with him and will be called his brothers and sisters. This is the, the argument that drives the blessings of this chapter. He is, in a sense, saying that he is both accomplishing substitution and fellowship. We talk frequently in the church about the fact that Jesus is our substitute, that he lived the life we were supposed to live, and he died the death we deserve to die. You've heard me say that. That's this idea of substitution, that he was absorbing the judgment of God on your behalf. But this text is saying, yes, that is true and important, and fellowship. It's not just substitution, it's also fellowship. He's gone to great lengths so that he's with you in the midst of your suffering. He's actually paving the way, showing us what the good, full, whole life is. Your life will be most rich and full and godly and true when you stop avoiding the pain and the struggle, but you plunge down into it and experience Jesus's nearness there. 
That's why he says things like, pick up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life, you'll find it. Lay your life down for your friends. Quit treating your life like it's the precious thing that you have to hold on to. Start treating his nearness like the precious thing that you wanna hold on to. And what you will find is your life will take this shape. It's what Paul Miller calls the J-curve. You will descend into your own death. You will no longer be central. But in that, you will find resurrection and life. Jesus is paving the way for the fullness of life, saying, I will be with you. This is what life is about. Okay, are you with me so far? How are we feeling about all this? Yeah? Christian feels okay about it. Anybody else? Set your mind on this. Let it be your soundtrack. Jesus is with you. That's the argument of verses one through 13. He wants you to start rehearsing. Oh, Jesus is with me. Jesus. Jesus is with me in my suffering and in my struggle. He's with me. Jesus calls me his brother. Jesus calls me his sister, and he's not ashamed to do so. Jesus is one with me. We have the same source. Jesus is with me. And then in the concluding verses, what he's gonna do is he's gonna tell us what flows out of that. There are tremendous blessings and benefits for your soul that will flow from that being the soundtrack that's playing in your mind. The first is this, all of your enemies are defeated. If Jesus, the one who reigns, did we hear it? Everything is being put as subject under his feet. He has all authority, he's above the angels, he's God himself, he's come to the earth and now he's with you. Therefore, the first thing that flows out in verse 14 is your enemies are destroyed. Look at this, verse 14, since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He's laying hold of everything he just said. Do you feel that? He's going, since you're flesh and blood, he came and he took part, he's with you. He's laying hold of the argument that he just made from verses five through 13 and putting them under his arm and now he's pressing forward. You feel it? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He's saying, why is this such good news? That he's with me, truly in flesh and blood, walking with me? It means that he has come so that he, through his own death, would destroy the power of death and the devil himself. For good, rational, thoughtful, Western, 21st century individuals, it's important that we hit pause and say, listen, the devil is real. And demons are real. They don't hide behind every rock and they're not the cause for every hard thing that happens in your life, but they are real. He is prowling around seeking whom he might devour. The way that he does it is he gets you to drift. He gets you to neglect what is precious. You, we are inundated by lies that become the soundtrack of our minds, incidentally. The lies of the enemy that he's whispering about your your lack of value or worth, or the fact that this thing that is enticing to you is gonna really finally deliver your pleasure and your fullness. He, he convinces you of these really foolish lies over and over and over again. And we realize that the enemy is thronging us. He hates us. 
That there is an enemy that hates Christians and wants to draw them away from the joy that is in Christ because in that God is glorified and he is laid low and the enemy hates that and rages against it. There is an enemy to your soul and every morning Ephesians 6 says you wake up in the middle of a war zone. He is pressing back against the kingdom of light. Listen, if, if you don't feel the pushback of the enemy, with some regularity, you need to pause and ask yourself, what direction are you headed? Because if we are headed in the way of Jesus, in the way of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness is pressing back against that. This is a ever-present reality as the New Testament explains what it means to live in the world. And into that place where we feel the pressure and the pushback, what the author of the Hebrews says is this, is Jesus has defeated that enemy. There was a season of my life, my, it was about my senior year of high school, my best friend Joseph and I, he would spend the night at my house pretty much every weekend, and we got into this rut. Like my last year at living at home, I watched the movie Braveheart maybe 40 times. <laughs> like every Friday night, we fell asleep watching Braveheart. We had this big L couch, I'd sleep on one side, he'd sleep on the other, and we would just be watching William Wallace do his thing. If you've seen the film, you, you know the story, but I think there was something about it that just captured a, like a 17-year-old Jeremiah's heart. Like this idea of a guy that just wanted to live a simple life. He just wanted to be a farmer and keep a low profile. But this Scottish man under the, the oppressive reign of the English in that season, they just continued to kind of make life really difficult. And then finally they, they captured his new bride and they beat her publicly and ended up killing her. And because of the, for the love of his bride, he comes and he sets a nation free. There was just something about like a man that was willing to fight and set a nation free because of the honor of his, of his beloved that captured my heart. And I remember the one moment where it flips just after his wife had been publicly killed. He rides into town and it looks like he's about to give himself over and it's this really slow scene. You've seen it, the, the chains are rattling and he's coming into town and, and you think, He's riding right into the teeth of the enemy. He's surrounded. Like, what's gonna happen? And then in like true William Wallace fashion, he does not hand himself over. He methodically and rather aggressively like vanquishes the enemy, you know? And uh, it's, this, it's this reality that that's, that's the story of the gospel, that Jesus with great affection for his bride that has been vandalized by an enemy says, I'm gonna come and set the world free. And he rides into the teeth of the enemy. And there's these moments where you think darkness is gonna swamp the light. Like in John, at the outset of the Gospel of John, he says that the light is gonna conquer the darkness, but there's this moment where Satan enters Judas Iscariot and Jesus looks at him and he says, go do what you're gonna do quickly. And, and he leaves. And then all of a sudden, and it says, and it was night. And he's not just making a note about what time of day it was. He's saying it was really dark like Jesus was in the teeth of the enemy. But friends, what you need to hear is this. Jesus, who rode in so meekly, so courageously, he came into the teeth of the enemy and he fought for you. And he defanged the lion. Like he said, send me into death and then I'm gonna shred it. 
Like I'm gonna take all of the curse upon myself and then I'm gonna destroy death. Death has been neutralized. Satan has been neutered. He has no power over you anymore. That false soundtrack that continues to throng you, it doesn't have authority over you anymore. Your enemies have been defeated. Jesus is with you. Everything is under his feet. He has all authority. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. Your enemy doesn't have authority over you anymore. And then logically, what flows directly out of that first benefit is this reality. You are free. If every enemy of your soul, death and the devil and anything that throngs against you has been defeated and put down, then you are free, radically free. This is the way he says it in verse 15. He says, and he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He says, you used to be slaves to the fear of death. No more, you're free. Now, I I think the sense is, I mean, most of us did not wake up today worried that today's gonna be the day I die. Fear of death for, for most is not like a present companion right next to you. It's not like fear of death is, oh my gosh, am I about to die? Am I about to come undone? But it's almost like fear of death is just always in the corner of the room. And I think the way this plays out for us is that it it reshapes the way we view time, the way we view our lives. That the fear of death is convincing us that time is so short. um, That your life is, is, needs to be like more frantic and urgent. You've gotta make something of yourself and produce something and prove how important and valuable you are because there's a certain sense in which we feel like it's this scarce resource because death is just kinda hanging out in the corner and we know like, okay, the minutes and the seconds and I need it all to add up to something that's really important. I think that's especially part of the soundtrack where we live and when we live. I don't know that we've ever put our finger on it, but I think it's fear of death and I think it's slavery because we never feel like we come up from under it. We feel like, oh, I've got I've to do more. I've got to manage more. I've got to, listen, imagine a, an alternative soundtrack that says, Jesus is with you. And what that means is you're eternal and you're awash in the love of God like you're saturated in the love of God and your life knows no end because by the way, what happened in the last verse, death just had its teeth kicked in. Death doesn't tell your story anymore. It doesn't have authority. Your life stretches beyond death. You are eternal in his hands and when you start to realize, I'm eternal and I'm awash in the love of God. Do you understand how this begins to reshape what you see on the screen, that soundtrack? When all of a sudden you're like, starting to feel revved up, the anger from the way that that person just treated you or this thing at work that's not panning out the way that it's supposed to be. uh, All of the things that are causing us to get back into the old loop on the soundtrack. When we hit pause, we go, no, 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 Jesus is with me. I'm free. You're secure. You're loved. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to prove. You're safe. Jesus is with you. Your enemies are defeated. You're free. The last thing is this. He will help you. 
he will help you. It's not just that he's conquered death and that he set you free. Quite frankly, freedom sometimes is pretty hard. Like being free, going, okay, I'm eternal and I'm loved, but I'm still trying to figure out, like navigating a really broken world. And he goes, oh yeah, I've got something for that too. I'm gonna help you along the way. He says, I'm gonna help angels. I'm not drawn to the really impressive and shining ones. I'm drawn to the weak, needy humanity. Look at the way he says it in verses 16 to 18 as he talks about his help for you and me. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. A priest lovingly tends to people and helps connect them to God. And what Jesus has become because he's experienced everything we've experienced is a really merciful high priest that says, oh, I get it. I took on flesh and I walked through suffering and through death, I get it. I can help you with that. I'm with you and I can help you with that. Will you stop that old soundtrack that makes you so frantic, anxious and urgent and trying to manage it all by yourself? Stop, I can help you with that. I'm merciful, I'm faithful. And then it says this, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's a really big term you probably didn't use this week in everyday language. Propitiation, it means taking wrath or judgment it take, to take the wrath of God and to transform it, to absorb the wrath of God and transform it into favor. He is a perfect high priest that is able to take the wrath of God and to turn it into favor that's pouring out on you. He goes, wrath for me, favor for you. This is what I can do as your good high priest. This is the sort of help I can give you. I can pour out the favor of God on you. Verse 18, for because... He himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And taking on flesh and becoming a little lower than the angels, Jesus came to understand what it means to be tempted truly. Satan was whispering to him from the time he was in the wilderness all the way until the time that he accomplished all for righteousness sake on the cross, whispering to him, you can take a shortcut. You don't have to obey God. It's so painful to obey God. Listen, the enemy's voice always sounds the same. To the singles that feel lonely and long for connection, he whispers and says, there's shortcuts. You don't have to continue to honor God in your singleness. It's what Jesus got at every turn is you don't have to honor God. You don't have to endure. You don't have to die. I can give you all of this without all of the pain. Jesus' soul was was inundated in such a way that when he looks at you in your moment of greatest temptation, he doesn't say, get it together. You should know better by now. He leans in and goes, oh, I get it. I felt it. And listen, I will help you. In the very moment of temptation, come to me right then. Start talking out loud to me right then and say, Jesus, help me. Help me. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to repeat that thing. I don't want to break my relationships. I don't want to rupture my trust with this person. Help me now and listen. He will. The beauty that is being delivered to our souls, the good news that he's saying, let this be your soundtrack, is Jesus is with you. He has gone to great lengths 
to taste death so that you don't have to, to absorb the wrath of God on the cross of Christ so that you don't have to. He has secured life and resurrection on the other side of the grave that is yours. It is the favor of God that is yours. And so your enemies don't tell your story anymore. You are free to go and he will help you along the way. Listen, set your mind on this. Jesus is with you. Let me pray for us. Just before I pray, uh, would you pray? Would you repent of the ways that you have drifted away or you have neglected what is precious? Would you repent and ask the, the Holy Spirit to reignite your heart? to cling to what is precious. Would you ask him that? Ah. Still in the spirit of prayer, to my non-Christian friends in the room, I'm really glad that you're here. You, we love to have you in this room. You are welcomed in this room. I wanna be really clear right now these promises that I'm articulating, they're for those that have trusted Jesus. I want those promises to be true for you, but until you trust him, they're not true for you. So would you run to him? He is a merciful, merciful and faithful high priest that will receive you. He will fight your enemies for you. He will set you free. He will help you. Run to him. Admit that you're a sinner and that you need him. He will come and he will make his home in your heart. To my Christian brothers and sisters, uh, God, we together in this moment, what we're asking is that we would set the soundtrack of our hearts, that we this week would meditate on and rehearse and celebrate and rejoice in the fact that Jesus is with us. Jesus is Come and make your presence known in full and fresh ways in each heart in this room. You are welcomed here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.